Section 12 of the History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Maspin Roberts. Book 2, Chapters 34-41. to 41. Chapter 34. The new consuls were Titus Giganius and Publius Minucius. In this year, whilst all abroad was undisturbed by war and the civic dissensions at home were healed, the commonwealth was attacked by another much more serious evil. First, dearness of food, owing to the fields remaining uncultivated during the secession, and following on this, a famine such as visits a besieged city. It would have led to the perishing of the slaves in any case, and probably the plebeians would have died, had not the consuls provided for the emergency by sending men in various directions to buy corn. They penetrated not only along the coast to the right of Ostia into Etruria, but also along the sea to the left, past the Volsian country as far as Cumi. Their search extended even as far as Sicily. To such an extent did the hostility of their neighbors compel them to seek distant help. When corn had been bought at Cumi, the ships were detained by the tyrant Aristodemus, in lieu of the property of Tarquin, to whom he was heir. Amongst the Volsians and in the Pomptine district, it was even impossible to purchase corn. The corn merchants were in danger of being attacked by the population. Some corn came from Etruria up the Tiber. This served for the support of the plebeians. They would have been harassed by a war, doubly unwelcome when provisions were so scarce, if the Volsians, who were already on the march, had not been attacked by a frightful pestilence. This disaster cowed the enemy so effectually that even when it had abated its violence they remained to some extent in a state of terror. The Romans increased the number of colonists at Velletri, and sent a new colony to Norba, up in the mountains, to serve as a stronghold in the Pomptine district. The Story of Coriolanus during the consulship of Marcus Minucius and Aulus Sempronius, a large quantity of corn was brought from Sicily, and the question was discussed in the Senate at what price it should be given to the plebs. Many were of opinion that the moment had come for putting pressure on the plebeians, and recovering the rights which had been wrested from the Senate through the secession and the violence which accompanied it. Foremost among these was Marcius Coriolanus, a determined foe to the tribunician power. If, he argued, they want their corn at the old price, let them restore to the Senate its old powers. Why then do I, after being sent under the yoke, ransomed as it were from brigands, see plebeian magistrates? Why do I see a Sicinius in power? Am I to endure these indignities a moment longer than I can help? Am I, who could not put up with a Tarquin as king, to put up with a Sicinius? Let him secede now. Let him call out his plebeians, the way lies open to the sacred hill and to other hills. Let them carry off the corn from our fields as they did two years ago. Let them enjoy the scarcity which in their madness they have produced. I will venture to say that after they have been tamed by these sufferings, they will rather work as laborers themselves in the fields than prevent their being cultivated by an armed secession. It is not so easy to say whether they ought to have done this as it is to express one's belief that it could have been done, and the senators might have made it a condition of lowering the price of the corn that they should abrogate the tribunician power and all the legal restrictions imposed upon them against their will. Chapter 35 The Senate considered these sentiments too bitter, 
the plebeians in their exasperation almost flew to arms famine they said was being used as a weapon against them as though they were enemies they were being cheated out of food and sustenance the foreign corn which fortune had unexpectedly given them as their sole means of support was to be snatched from their mouths unless their tribunes were given up in chains to Nius marcius unless he could work his will on the backs of the roman plebeians in him a new executioner had sprung up who ordered them either to die or live as slaves he would have been attacked on leaving the senate house had not the tribunes most opportunely fixed a day for his impeachment this allayed the excitement every man saw himself a judge with the power of life and death over his enemy at first marcius treated the threats of the tribunes with contempt they had the right of protecting not of punishing they were the tribunes of the plebs not of the patricians but the anger of the plebeians was so thoroughly roused that the patricians could only save themselves by the punishment of one of their order they resisted however in spite of the odium they incurred and exercised all the powers they possessed both collectively and individually at first they attempted to thwart proceedings by posting pickets of their clients to deter individuals from frequenting meetings and conclaves then they proceeded in a body you might suppose that every patrician was impeached and employed the plebeians if they refused to acquit a man who was innocent at least to give up to them as guilty one citizen one senator as he did not put in an appearance on the day of trial their resentment remained unabated and he was condemned in his absence he went into exile among the volscians uttering threats against his country and even then entertaining hostile designs against it the volscians welcomed his arrival and he became more popular as his resentment against his countrymen became more bitter and his complaints and threats were more frequently heard he enjoyed the hospitality of adius tullius who was by far the most important man at that time amongst the volscians and a lifelong enemy of the romans impelled each by similar motives the one by old standing hatred the other by newly provoked resentment they formed joint plans for war with rome they were under the impression that the people could not easily be induced after so many defeats to take up arms again and that after their losses in their numerous wars and recently through the pestilence their spirits were broken the hostility had now had time to die down it was necessary therefore to adopt some artifice by which fresh irritation might be produced chapter thirty six it so happened that preparations were being made for a repetition of the great games the reason for their repetition was that early in the morning prior to the commencement of the games a householder after flogging his slave had driven him through the middle of the circus maximus then the games commenced as though the incident had no religious significance not long afterwards titus latinius a member of the plebs had a dream jupiter appeared to him and said that the dancer who commenced the games was displeasing to him adding that unless those games were repeated with due magnificence disaster would overtake the city and he was to go and report this to the consuls though he was by no means free from religious scruples still his fears gave way before his awe of the magistrates lest he should become an object of public ridicule this hesitation cost him dear for within a few days he lost his son that he might have no doubt as to the cause of this sudden calamity the same form again appeared to the distressed father in his sleep and demanded of him whether he had been sufficiently repaid for his neglect of the divine will for a more terrible recompense was impending if he did not speedily go and inform the consuls though the matter was becoming more urgent he still delayed and while thus procrastinating he was attacked by a serious illness in the form of sudden paralysis 
Now the divine wrath thoroughly alarmed him, and wearied out by his past misfortune and the one from which he was suffering, he called his relations together and explained what he had seen and heard, the repeated appearance of Jupiter in his sleep, the threatening wrath of heaven brought home to him by his calamities. On the strong advice of all present, he was carried in a litter to the consuls in the forum, and from there by the consul's order into the senate house. After repeating the same story to the senators, to the intense surprise of all, another marvel occurred. The tradition runs that he who had been carried into the senate house paralyzed in every limb returned home after performing his duty on his own feet. Chapter 37 The senate decreed that the games should be celebrated on the most splendid scale. At the suggestion of Adius Tolius, a large number of Volsians came to them. In accordance with a previous arrangement with Marcius, Tolius came to the consuls before the proceedings commenced, and said that there were certain matters touching the state which he wished to discuss privately with them. When all the bystanders had been removed, he began, It is with great reluctance that I say anything to the disparagement of my people. I do not come, however, to charge them with having actually committed any offense, but to take precautions against their committing one. The character of our citizens is more fickle than I should wish. We have experienced this in many defeats, for we owe our present security not to our own deserts, but to your forbearance. Here at this moment are a great multitude of Volsians. The games are going on. The whole city will be intent on the spectacle. I remember what an outrage was committed by the young Sabines on a similar occasion. I shudder lest any ill-advised and reckless incident should occur. For our sakes, and yours, consuls, I thought it right to give you this warning. As far as I am concerned, it is my intention to start at once for home, lest, if I stay, I should be involved in some mischief either of speech or act. With these words he departed. These vague hints, uttered apparently on good authority, were laid by the consuls before the senate. As generally happens, the authority rather than the facts of the case induced them to take even excessive precautions. A decree was passed that the Volsians should leave the city. Criers were sent round, ordering them all to depart before nightfall. Their first feeling was one of panic as they ran off to their respective lodgings to take away their effects, but when they had started, a feeling of indignation arose at their being driven away from the games, from a festival which was, in a manner, a meeting of gods and men, as though they were under the curse of heaven and unfit for human society. Chapter 38 as they were going along in an almost continuous stream, Tolius, who had gone on in advance, waited for them at the Ferentine Fountain. Accosting their chief men as they came up in tones of complaint and indignation, he led them, eagerly listening to words which accorded with their own angry feelings, and threw them, the multitude, down to the plain which stretched below the road. There he began a speech. Even though you should forget the wrongs that Rome has inflicted and the defeats which the Volsian nation has suffered, though you should forget everything else, with what temper, I should like to know, do you brook this insult of yesterday, when they commenced their games by treating us with ignominy? Have you not felt that they have won a triumph over you today, that as you departed you were a spectacle to the townsfolk, to the strangers, to all those neighboring populations, that your wives, your children, were paraded as a gazing stock before men's eyes? What do you suppose were the thoughts of those who heard the voice of the criers, those who watched us depart, those who met this ignominious cavalcade? 
What could they have thought but that there was some awful guilt cleaving to us, so that if we had been present at the games, we should have profaned them, and made an expiation necessary, and that this was the reason why we were driven away from the abodes of these good and religious people, and from all intercourse and association with them? Does it not occur to you that we owe our lives to the haste with which we departed, if we may call it a departure and not a flight? And do you count this city as anything else than the city of your enemies, where, had you lingered a single day, you would all have been put to death? War has been declared against you, to the great misery of those who have declared it, if you are really men. So they dispersed to their homes, with their feelings of resentment embittered by this harangue. They so worked upon the feelings of their fellow countrymen, each in his own city, that the whole Volsian nation revolted. Chapter 39 by the unanimous vote of the states, the conduct of the war was entrusted to Adius Tullius and Nius Marcius, the Roman exile, on whom their hopes chiefly rested. He fully justified their expectations, so that it became quite evident that the strength of Rome lay in her generals rather than in her army. He first marched against Circii, expelled the Roman colony, and handed it over to the Volscians as a free city. Then he took Satricum, Longula, Pelusa, and Corioli towns which the Romans had recently acquired. Marching across country into the Latin road, he recovered Lavinium, and then, in succession, Corbio, Vitellia, Trebium, Labici, and Pedum. Finally, he advanced from Pedum against the city. He entrenched his camp at the Cluilian Dikes, about five miles distant, and from there he ravaged the Roman territory. The raiding parties were accompanied by men whose business it was to see that the lands of the patricians were not touched, a measure due either to his rage being especially directed against the plebeians, or to his hope that dissensions might arise between them and the patricians. These certainly would have arisen. To such a pitch were the tribunes exciting the plebs by their attacks on the chief men of the state. Had not the fear of the enemy outside, the strongest bond of union, brought men together in spite of their mutual suspicions and aversion. On one point they disagreed. The Senate and the consuls placed their hopes solely in arms. The plebeians preferred anything to war. Spurius Nautius and Sextus Furius were now consuls. Whilst they were reviewing the legions and manning the walls and stationing troops in various places, an enormous crowd gathered together. At first they alarmed the consuls by seditious shouts, and at last they compelled them to convene the Senate and submit a motion for sending ambassadors to Nias Marcius. As the courage of the plebeians was evidently giving way, the Senate accepted the motion, and a deputation was sent to Marcius with proposals for peace. They brought back the stern reply, If the territory were restored to the Volsians, the question of peace could be discussed, but if they wished to enjoy the spoils of war at their ease, he had not forgotten the wrongs inflicted by his countrymen, nor the kindness shown by those who were now his hosts, and would strive to make it clear that his spirit had been roused, not broken, by his exile. The same envoys were sent on a second mission, but were not admitted into the camp. According to the tradition, the priests also in their robes went as suppliants to the enemy's camp, but they had no more influence with him than the previous deputation. Chapter 40 then the matrons went in a body to Veturia, the mother of Coriolanus, and Volumnia, his wife. Whether this was in consequence of a decree of the Senate or simply the prompting of womanly fear, I am unable to ascertain. 
but at all events they succeeded in inducing the aged Vituria to go with Volumnia and her two little sons to the enemy's camp. As men were powerless to protect the city by their arms, the women sought to do so by their tears and prayers. On their arrival at the camp, a message was sent to Coriolanus that a large body of women were present. He had remained unmoved by the majesty of the state and the persons of its ambassadors, and by the appeal made to his eyes and mind in the persons of its priests. He was still more obdurate to the tears of the women. Then one of his friends, who had recognized Vituria, standing between her daughter-in-law and her grandsons, and conspicuous amongst them all in the greatness of her grief, said to him, Unless my eyes deceive me, your mother and wife and children are here. Coriolanus, almost like one demented, sprung from his seat to embrace his mother. She, changing her tone from entreaty to anger, said, Before I admit your embrace, suffer me to know whether it is to an enemy or a son that I have come, whether it is as your prisoner or as your mother that I am in your camp. Has a long life and an unhappy old age brought me to this, that I have to see you in exile, and from that an enemy? Had you the heart to ravage this land, which is born and nourished you? However hostile and menacing the spirit in which you came, did not your anger subside as you entered its borders? Did you not say to yourself when your eye rested on Rome, Within those walls are my home, my household gods, my mother, my wife, my children? Must it then be that, had I remained childless, no attack would have been made on Rome? Had I never had a son, I should have ended my days a free woman in a free country? But there is nothing which I can suffer now that will not bring more disgrace to you than wretchedness to me. Whatever unhappiness awaits me, it will not be for long. Look to these, whom, if you persist in your present course, an untimely death awaits, or a long life of bondage. When she ceased, his wife and children embraced him, and all the women wept and bewailed their own and their country's fate. At last his resolution gave way. He embraced his family and dismissed them, and moved his camp away from the city. After withdrawing his legions from the Roman territory, he is said to have fallen a victim to the resentment which his action aroused, but as to the time and circumstances of his death, the traditions vary. I find in Fabius, who is by far the oldest authority, that he lived to be an old man. He relates a saying of his which he often uttered in his later years, that it is not till a man is old that he feels the full misery of exile. The Roman husbands did not grudge their wives the glory they had won, so completely were their lives free from the spirit of detraction and envy. A temple was built and dedicated to Fortuna Moliebris to serve as a memorial of their deed. Subsequently, the combined forces of the Volscians and Equi re-entered the Roman territory. The Equi, however, refused any longer to accept the generalship of Adius Tolius. A quarrel arose as to which nation should furnish the commander of the combined army, and this resulted in a bloody battle. Here the good fortune of Rome destroyed the two armies of her enemies in a conflict no less ruinous than obstinate. The new consuls were Titus Sicinius and Gaius Aquilius. To Sicinius was assigned the campaign against the Volscians, to Aquilius that against the Hernici, for they also were in arms. In that year the Hernici were subjugated, the campaign against the Volscians ended indecisively. Chapter 41 the Treason of Spurius Cassius For the next year, Spurius Cassius and Proculus Virginius were elected consuls. A treaty was concluded with the Hernici, two-thirds of their territory was taken from them. Of this, Cassius intended to give half to the Latins and half to the Roman plebs. 
He contemplated adding to this a quantity of land which, he alleged, though state land, was occupied by private individuals. This alarmed many of the patricians, the actual occupiers, as endangering the security of their property. On public grounds, too, they felt anxious, as they considered that by this largesse the consul was building up a power dangerous to liberty. Then, for the first time, an agrarian law was proposed, and never, from that day to the times within our own memory, has one been mooted without the most tremendous commotions. The other consul resisted the proposed grant. In this he was supported by the Senate, whilst the plebs was far from unanimous in its favor. They were beginning to look askance at a boon so cheap as to be shared between citizens and allies, and they often heard the consul Virginius in his public speeches predicting that his colleague's gift was fraught with mischief, the land in question would bring slavery on those who took it, the way was being prepared for a throne. Why were the allies, he asked, and the Latin League included? What necessity was there for a third part of the territory of the Hernici? So lately our foes, being restored to them, unless it was that these nations might have Cassius as their leader in place of Coriolanus, the opponent of the agrarian law began to be popular. Then both consuls tried who could go furthest in humoring the plebs. Virginius said that he would consent to the assignment of the lands provided they were assigned to none but Roman citizens. Cassius had courted popularity amongst the allies by including them in the distribution and had thereby sunk in the estimation of his fellow citizens. To recover their favor, he gave orders for the money which had been received for the corn from Sicily to be refunded to the people. This offer the plebeians treated with scorn as nothing else than the price of a throne. Owing to their innate suspicion that he was aiming at monarchy, his gifts were rejected as completely as if they had abundance of everything. It is generally asserted that immediately upon his vacating office he was condemned and put to death. Some assert that his own father was the author of his punishment, that he tried him privately at home, and after scourging him, put him to death and devoted his private property to Ceres. From the proceeds, a statue of her was made with an inscription, given from the Cassian family. I find in some authors a much more probable account, namely, that he was arraigned by the quaestors Caeso Fabius and Lucius Valerius before the people and convicted of treason, and his house ordered to be demolished. It stood on the open space in front of the temple of Tellus. In any case, whether the trial was a public or a private one, his condemnation took place in the consulship of Servius Cornelius and Quintus Fabius. End of section 12. Read by Geoffrey Stumpf. Portland, Oregon, April 2022.